Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. Today, we're pleased to bring you our first recording from the Fitzroy Writers' Festival, held at the Fitzroy Town Hall earlier this year. Our Growing Up African in Australia panel was chaired by Maxine Beniba Clark and featured Nyadol Nguyen, Santilla Chingayepi, Festina Agoli, and Guido Melu. This panel was brought to you in partnership with the Ewing Trust and Yarra Youth Services. Uh, hello, good morning, and thank you to everyone for being here today. I'd like to um, also acknowledge that we are on unceded Aboriginal land and to pay my respects to Indigenous people, the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation, and to their elders, past, present, and future. Um, I would like, with great joy, to introduce our panellists today. First, uh, here we have Santilla Chingapi. She's an award-winning journalist and filmmaker, She spent nearly a decade working for SBS World News, which saw her report from across Africa and interview some of the continent's prominent leaders. Her work explores contemporary migration, cultural identity, and politics. She writes regularly for the Saturday paper, and she's a member of the federal government's advisory group on African-Australia relations. Uh, She is currently developing several factual and narrative film projects, and her latest documentary series, Third Culture Kids, airs on the ABC later this year. Um, Next to Santi, we actually have Faustina, who isn't on the program, so you've got a free extra panellist. Faustina happened to be (laughs) in Melbourne today, and so, you know, in the very black way, I was like, come on stage! (laughs) Faustina Agoli is a television host, an actor, a DJ, a producer, and a writer. She has hosted video hits, The Voice, the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. She made her stage debut in the Moliere award-winning play, The Father, and toured Australia and New Zealand as Oprah Winfrey's resident DJ on her An Evening with Oprah tour. Faustina is a graduate of media and communications at the University of Melbourne and media studies at RMIT University. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Sorry for springing it on you. <laughs> uh, next we have Nyadol Nyoan, who's a commercial litigator and community advocate. She was born in Ethiopia and raised in Kenya and moved to Australia at age 18. In 2011 and 2014, Nyadol was nominated as one of the 100 most influential African Australians. She's a board member of the Melbourne Social Equity Institute and appears regularly in the media, including on ABC's The The Drum and Q&A, where I'm sure some of you have heard her. And on the end, we have Guido Mello. Guido's an Afro-Brazilian living in Melbourne. He's a photography enthusiast, a digital marketing and social media manager, a part-time writer, a passionate advocate for racial equality, and an active member of Melbourne's political and social scene. So please welcome all our panellists. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really thrilled, I guess, to be here hosting um, for this book, which, you know, I edited it, so it's kind of, you know, I shouldn't really lord it so much, but I just think that the work of these writers is really extraordinary, um, and together they have created a book that I hope will become a modern Australian nonfiction classic. 
Um, and on that note, I would love to begin with a reading from the book uh, by one of the authors. And we might start with Guido um, reading from his piece, A Long Way Home. So before I read, I will give you a little feedback. I mean, um, I like what happened before. So I, um, I was born in Brazil and in Salvador, and I was moving to Australia in the early 2000s, and um, I bought one-way ticket, <laughs> a one-way ticket, and I remember uh, the travel agent saying to me, you know, nobody buys a one-way ticket, you know, you should come back, and I said, I'm never coming back to this place. Um, not because Brazil is great, you know, if you're white, it's awesome. Um, but yeah, so that's the story of this one-way ticket that did uh, Rio, um, Lisbon, then Paris, Bangkok, Perth, Melbourne. So the, the excerpt I'm going to read is titled Perth. After about eight hours in Paris, I boarded a plane to Australia. The flight path took me to Perth. My partner wasn't arriving in Melbourne for another four days. I didn't want her to get there before her, so I had planned a four-day stopover in Perth. When I landed, I was expecting anything but help, given my experience at the Lisbon airport. The immigration officer in Perth asked me why I was coming to Australia. I said, because of my partner, she asked, where are you going to? And I said, Melbourne. How long are you staying? Probably, indefinitely, hopefully. Then she looked at me and smiled, this white lady, and said, welcome to Australia. It's the simple things, you know. I thought, I have arrived in a good place. Perth was very underdeveloped at the time, at least in my mind. I think I remember red dirt, this red dirt everywhere. But then, memory is so strange and unreliable. I was going to stay in a backpacker hostel, and I overheard these two English guys talking. They were going to the same place. I pushed my way into the conversation and said, let's go together. They didn't want to. They told me that my bags wouldn't fit in the car, but I was very insistent. I said that I could hold my, the bags in my lap. That was very Brazilian of me. I don't know if I would do that today. I was interested in being their friend, but they were not interested in me. We shared the, the ride, we shook hands, and we went our separate ways. I put my bag in my room, and changed into shorts. It was February, summer in Perth, incredibly blue skies, this dry heat I had never felt before. There were flies. It was all very new to me. There were no smartphones then, so there was nothing to do but explore on foot. I walked around for a few hours. I was scanning, literally scanning, the streets for black people. I never felt like such a minority before, not on this scale, not even in Paris. Then, finally, I saw another black guy 
He wasn't even closed. He was about 200 meters away. But I ran to him and introduced myself. <laughs> he said he was a Kenyan, an engineering student. I convinced him to go to a pub. <laughs> I don't know how, but I convinced him. It was like a Wednesday or something. <laughs> the first pub we saw was an Irish pub. He said, we can't go in there. And I said, mate, this is 2003. We can go anywhere. <laughs> he didn't believe me, but he relented and said, okay, if you walk in first, I'll go right behind you. He, and he did. I went up to this ginger-haired, blue-eyed barman and said, can I have a couple of pints, please? And he responded, coming right up. Everyone in the room was white, and everyone was looking at us. But I just said to my Kenyan new friend, come on, just talk to me. We stayed there and talked for a long time. As we left, he shook my hand and said, I'm very thankful that you did that for me. And I said, I didn't do it for you. I did it for us. The next day I went to, to the beach in Fremantle. It was deserted. There was no one in there, which was confusing to me. Because, you know, Copacabana, there's like a million people. <laughs> I, I wasn't even sure if it was safe. The sharks, you know. <laughs> then a mother and a daughter arrived. The girl was about four or five. I watched them closely. I was looking at them nonstop, watching everything they were doing. Probably, in hindsight, that was a bit creepy. <laughs> I thought, whatever they do, I can do. When they went into the water, I water next to them and stay in the water. I said, I'm sorry, I'm not from here. I'm not sure if there's sharks around, but I guess if you are swimming here, I can just stay close to you. You know, when I think about it now, that would have been a very weird experience for that lady. <laughs> I was probably about a meter from her. I was really close. They would leave the water, and I would leave the water. <laughs> they would go back into the water, and I would go back to the water. <laughs> we did this for a while, an odd sort of dance. They left the beach, and a few minutes later, I left too. Thank you, Guido. Um, one of the decisions that the editors, the other editors that I made uh, in this collection was really to include um, the African diaspora in the definition of African-Australian. Um, so this idea that really people of African descent, whether they've come to Australia via the Americas over several generations or whether they came uh, from the African continent yesterday was kind of, I guess, that idea of a collective experience um, that we wanted to include. And so it's really great to have some pieces from Brazil and Jamaica and the diaspora um, included in the collection. 
Uh, we might move on, uh, given that we started in Perth, to Santilla, who grew up in Perth um, and wrote quite an extraordinary piece set in the schoolyards of her youth. Life was going well until we were informed that we had to take compulsory sports classes for a term. Being head girl wasn't going to get me out of this. The small suburban primary school I went to in Perth didn't have options beyond netball or AFL for winter, and I had to choose one of those to commit for a whole term. I didn't like netball. It seemed like a girl's sport. I would not be caught dead playing it. Although I had friends who were girls, they didn't like the things I liked. I wanted to prove I could do what the boys did. I spent most of my childhood playing with boys. I hung around my brother and his friends and often got into fights with boys. So I settled on AFL. I soon discovered that I was the only girl to sign up to the team. Many of the boys took AFL very seriously and thought they'd one day play in the big leagues in Melbourne. I knew that they would assume I couldn't play because I was a girl and would make fun of me. So I convinced two of my friends to join the team. Although this was primary school, I was very focused. My parents helped me pick out the right kind of boots to kick a Sharon around. Dad even watched AFL matches on television to help me prepare. My dad preferred soccer, or football as he called it, and he and my brother would wake up early to catch matches on SBS. He only watched AFL if he had work on Monday, so he could have something to talk about with his colleagues. Prior to joining the footy team, my only interactions with AFL had been the once-a-term clinics we'd have at school when a small cohort of players from the Fremantle Dockers would pay us a visit and hand out inflatable footballs and T-shirts. I knew girls didn't play the sport because there was none on TV. I still recall the rush of adrenaline when I was taught in my first training session how to kick a football properly. Most of the boys already played footy during lunch and recess, but it was all new to me. My coach pulled me aside and walked me to the front of the goalposts. I remember him instructing me to hold the ball with my arm stretched out and my eye on the goal, running and then letting go of the ball midair so that my foot could pick it up and kick it. My kicks barely went further than 20 metres, but I was still proud of myself. I could play this boys' sport. From then on, I'd look forward to AFL practice every week. My friends soon gave up, and it was just me and the boys. My kicks and handballs never improved, and I'd run away any time I'd see anyone attempt a mark near me. I vividly recall one of the boys losing his two front teeth after taking a knock, and I was not interested in experiencing that. After what seemed like a lifetime of practice sessions, our team took part in a championship with other local schools. We played every weekend, and I was always on the bench. One day, my coach told me I would be starting in the next match. I was so excited, I told my parents it could be a life-changing game. I'd watched the Mighty Ducks movie so many times, I began to believe that somehow, the skills that had escaped me during practice would suddenly appear and I'd kick the match-winning goal and go on to play for the Fremantle Dockers. <laughs> Although the Eagles were the Western Australian team that won premierships in the 1990s, I'd convinced myself that I would be the star the Dockers had been waiting for to lead them to glory. I could hear the commentators saying, it's Chingaipe with the ball, with only seconds left behind before the siren goes off, the Dockers are behind by two points, she's going for goal, can she do it, she's going for it, she's going... Oh, it's in. Chingaipe scores the match-winning goal. You beauty. And there it is. Dockers win by four points. 
A few minutes after the match started, my coach yelled out to me to remember who to pass the ball to. I was not required to do any more than that. This seemed easy enough, and once I got comfortable, I thought I would show the coach what I was truly capable of. While I was daydreaming about what that moment would feel like, I was quickly reminded of my immediate reality when I heard a thud near me. I turned around and realised that the ball had been kicked towards me and wasn't in anyone's possession. Before I could think, I saw a pack of boys running aggressively towards me. I picked up the ball, and somewhere in the distance, I could hear my coach yelling for me to pass it. The pack of boys moved closer, looking scarier than I had imagined they would in my dreams of this game. I panicked, dropping the ball like a hot potato, and jumped aside and watched as this pack of boys fell on top of one another, trying to grab the Sharon. Feeling relieved that I'd just avoided certain death, I turned to look at my coach, who pulled me aside and told me to sit out the rest of the match. A few of the kids laughed at me, and as I sat back on the bench, I realised that maybe AFL wasn't my game after all. I spent the rest of the season on the bench and never played a game again. But what I did learn from my short-lived football career was the importance of having a go. Playing AFL, albeit briefly, taught me that there's nothing that boys can do that I can't, and I've carried that lesson with me into adulthood. And I still hate taking part in team sports. Thanks, Santi. I think part of the joy of this collection is that it just covers so many different topics. Um, and it was kind of delighted to, having known Santi for a while, like get to know little Santi, you know, who's <laughs> not much different from big Santi, I think. <laughs> Always has a hustle on, that's great. <laughs> and so we might go to um, Nyadol, I think, to read a section from her piece. I think another great thing about the collection is there are so many strong black female voices and Nyadol wrote a beautiful piece which really is a, a tribute to the matriarchs of her family. After so many years without my mother, I just wanted someone to look after me, not someone who came with her own load in life, a load that required understanding which I was too immature to have and sometimes too selfish to give. It will not be until I had a child of my own that I will realize that mothers are not just mothers. They remain their own persons with their own dreams and aspirations, which do not have to be derived from their identity as caregivers. I would realize that my bond with my mother was complicated by culture and, and made extraordinarily difficult by war. I would understand that my mother stood as the total sum of what had, what had happened to her much of which she could not control, and that in many ways she had survived with as much dignity as one could wrangle out of such a situation. I would learn that when she spoke to me, she was sometimes speaking to things that I could not see, and I would never fully comprehend. I would learn all this in Australia, because the chance to live in safety allowed us to spend an interrupted time together. It, allows, it allowed us the luxury to not merely survive, but to live in the full complexity of being a human being instead of just refugees. Before we returned to Australia, my mother and I traveled through Ethiopia, where my grandmother lived at the time, and then to South Sudan. I saw her treated with such a level of honor that I'd never seen before. She was respected, she was known, she was relied upon for advice and counsel. She had a voice a strong voice. It was so strong that her people had once picked her to represent them as a member of parliament. 
I could not help but compare that to her life in Melbourne, where she struggles to find work as a cleaner or an aged care worker. I had watched her struggle with the language, struggle to understand the complex letters sent by Centling, insurance companies or the banks. It is a blunt contrast to go from having a voice so strong and clear enough for the National Parliament of South Sudan to struggling on a phone call, nearly in tears, in Australia. It was, it was as if her tongue has been cut out, as if she was socially crippled in this society. Many people assume that everybody wants to come to Australia. I have wondered whether my mom ever wanted to. Mom, like many parents, came to this country for her children. She wanted my siblings and me to have a better life, or at least a chance to try and make something of ourselves. No matter how bad her country was, I knew she was industrious enough to have survived, maybe even thrived. I had seen her create magic from little. She ran a small business in Kakuma refugee camp in northern Kenya. She negotiated for land to build our home in an area denied to refugees for a long time. We never went, without, we never went a single day without food in Kakuma when many struggled. I've always felt that my mother would have stayed in Africa were it not for us. I knew this after our trip to Africa because she glowed. She glowed whenever we were there. She seemed more alive. That light appeared to diminish each day she stayed in Australia. In coming to Australia, my mother made a sacrifice necessitated by war and by love, a love for her children. I cannot escape the fact that I was a big reason for that sacrifice. As her own light grew weak, mine was made brighter by immigrating to Australia. Yeah, a lot of pieces in the growing up in African and Australia travel through different spaces and um, continent. And I think Nyadol did a really beautiful job of looking at the impact that actually has on um, different people in the family, the matriarchs of the family as geography shifts. And so we might uh, end before we start our discussion uh, with Faustina, who wrote a beautiful piece called Sam, which really is about... Finding roots, I guess. So the context of my story is about learning about my father, Samuel Agoli, um, after his passing. I'm half Chinese. Well, I don't like to say half anymore. I'm, I'm Chinese and Ghanaian. So this is the context about my Chinese mother. Mum always finds it hard to talk about him. One day, around age five, I come home from school and ask her why I don't have a father. She isn't prepared to answer at the time, yet she's been expecting this question for a while. The next day at work, she calls a friend in tears, trying to find ways to broach the subject with me. As I get older, I talk about him factually. My father passed away from a car accident in London when I was a child. Never my dad, it seemed too casual. Father. People ask more. I tell them other stray facts I've learnt from hearing mum speak of him in public. Facts that make no sense to me. How old were you? Seven weeks old. Oh my God, you weren't a child, you were a baby. How old was he? In his thirties? That's so terrible. Your poor mother. And her? Thirty. The only other facts that I know until I'm a teenager are that his name was Samuel and that he was from Ghana. I learned to say that Ghana is in West Africa for people who don't know where Ghana is or think Africa is a country. 
I also explain this to make a point to those confused by the sight of a Chinese woman with a black child. Yes, this beautiful Chinese woman is my mother. Heads turn when my brother and I walk into Chinese restaurants with our family for yum cha on weekends. I grow up knowing his absence instead of his stories. Random consequences follow his passing. I am pulled out of class to sit with an apparent counsellor who asks me to talk and draw about my feelings. Mum has to... Mum has to juggle three jobs. My brother gets into fights at school. He runs away from our house in Clayton to my grandparents' home nearby. The second time he runs away, Mum makes the decision to move us all under their roof. It's all because of my father. My father who passed away when I was a baby. And your mum never remarried? No. She's so strong. If I ask Mum a question about my father... She usually says that she can't remember the answer. If I am persistent, her voice quivers, a long silence follows, and her soft brown eyes turn to anguish. Tears roll down her gentle face. In these moments, I know I've gone too far. Asking questions, being curious, wanting to know anything beyond the violent, bleak facts of my father's death causes an unattended trauma to the only parent I know and, and love. So I learn not to ask. And yet, the trauma still looms between the three of us. Trauma is conflated with a man who had a full life, a life I want to know about. But asking about it stuns mum into a bereaved silence. The news of his death makes strangers horrified. I am lost. So you can see from those four readings how strong the writing of this collection is. These are four people who have been extraordinarily successful in their various fields. But I think writing nonfiction was a big ask. And there was some, I think, on all of their parts, some reluctance or hesitance. And so I wanted to open up to the panel to, I guess, talk about this process of telling your story, what it felt like what the fears were and, and how you feel now that the stories are on the page? I, I'm going to out myself and say I was quite reluctant. <laughs> I didn't want to write my, about my story, particularly about my mother, because it's really hard to write about people that are alive and that continue to change and some days you don't like them very much and some days you like them a lot and, uh, and you don't know whether you, when, the, when you're writing at a particular moment, whether you're writing from an anger from just disagreement with them or you're writing from a recall from a different place. And I, want, and I also think it gets really complicated when you write about someone and someone, somebody else goes and read it and construct a completely different, different image of the person you wrote about because they don't have the full view of that person. And so I didn't want to give people a fragment of my mom that made her look bad. I think that's what was my struggle and still is my struggle with telling um, stories. I, um, I felt similar to you, like I, you know, I, there's a passage on my, my, my story that talks about my mom and I was so worried that people would think she was a bad person and I came back on the final stages of the editing and I had an entire sentence saying, you know, my mom was part of this history and that's the circumstances at the time and because it's so hard and I, I you know, 
there's a lot of people involved, you know, and you don't want to you don't want to hurt them, but so you you maybe uh, keep a lot of things out, and you try to be fair to them. And yeah, I found very hard to talk about the leaving, you know. But if about things, people that can the dad or the friends from the past, I thought was easy because I was being more. But memory is so strange. I find that. You know, I had I had memories, and then I meet people, and then they tell a completely different story. That's not how it happened, and I think I thought that was how it happened. So it's, I hope, to the best of my ability, I, I, you know, was accurate. Santilla, I would agree with both Guido and Yadol. I think it was, it wasn't so much a challenge. It was just a very different exercise for me because I'm so used to writing um, journalism-based work and it's always about situating the story and you're never part of the story. So this was the first time I actually wrote something where I was the story and that was quite an interesting challenge. I'd agree with Guido, I think, um, revisiting memories and trying to be as truthful to those memories can be quite challenging. Yeah, but it was, it was, it was a good challenge. I don't think I'd do it again, though. (laughs) (laughs) Wait till someone offers you a book deal. (laughs) It'll happen. What about you, Faustina? I I agree about the the aspects of talking about living family members, but I I cross-checked it with mum. But the thing was, it was so healing for our family, actually, because it it was still... Every now and again, it's still a challenge to talk about my dad, but what came from writing this process and allowing myself to grieve because I I felt so guilty for grieving somebody who I didn't know or didn't have memory of. That was very challenging and but I allowed myself to grieve through the process and my mother and I could have a beautiful conversation once I had finished the story and I I needed to actually go into some boxes and to find aspects of my father, like artefacts that were left behind, telegrams and things that really showed an essence of his character. And I'd noticed that my mum, in his passing, had very methodically, you know, worked on the funeral, on the memory, on the surface of his memory. And I, I just loved that. And I, and we'd not spoken about that. So when I sat with her, I said, thank you so much for doing this it would have been so difficult for you being a single mother of two kids in London with no hardly any family support and she was so grateful and she also said I'm so sorry it's been just so hard for you she had no idea so what what my story even though it's not named it's about PTSD right like you don't talk about mental health issues in the 80s you don't talk about your grief in the 80s it's really I think a a very new thing that we're talking about publicly so that's what I loved about it. And I also could find my rebellious roots. In, in the book, I also talk about finding my identity through television, watching Oprah Winfrey and a lot of musicians and video hits. So it's no wonder why I ended up hosting video hits because I felt like it was a home for me. But um, yeah, I, I loved that, that process of rebelling from school just so I could watch Oprah Winfrey during the day. And that was me resisting being a closeted lesbian uh, you know, just loving music and just didn't, and just resisting patriarchy and uh, my Catholic school, <laughs> and just wanting to do things my way. So it was, it's kind of nice to have that these solid ideas as to who I was growing up from reflecting on memory. 
Yeah. That's what I loved about it. And uh, just, just one more thing. When I told my mom, the same as first thing I told my mom, you know, I wrote about you in the book and sort of, you, it's a bit bad because <laughs> she's teaching me how to fight with other kids and bunch of other kids and whatever. And I was telling her and, and she's like, and she, I was expecting she would be upset or embarrassed. She's like, did you tell about that? And I said, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and she, she said, I would do it again. <laughs> so she's not, you know, at age of, you know, like 2019, 1984, it's all the same to her. She's still punching through. Can I also mention one other thing is that I, I did a, a podcast for uh, Brown Girl in the Ring, which comes out, I think, today. And the reflection that Deborah made about reading my story and some of the other stories in the book was that I love that it's not about being the model immigrant always striving, always excellent. Like, there's flaws too. We have flaws. And that's shown in the book. And it's just nice to have a well-rounded, multi-dimensional human beings on the page, you know? Yeah. And I feel like, um, you know, there's two aspects, I guess, to being a black migrant. One is the the always othering kind of African gangs, media beat up. And the other is that idea, and they're, they're interlinked, obviously, that you have to be a good migrant um, you know you have to always behave yourself and never step out of line and that's kind of the narrative that we're sold sold and also in terms of memoir that is often the kind of memoir that people of color are allowed to write you're allowed to write a memoir that's about how Australia saved you from whether it's a war-torn country or you know as long as Australia's the victor that's fine and so I guess I wanted to talk about this idea of, um, I know Santi hosted, a, 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 you know, hosts many events at the Wheeler Centre, but a lot of them are about broader, broadening the concept of, of what is African, you know, that, and there's quite a few pieces in the book that actually have that line, Africa's not a country, you know. Um, and so I wanted to talk about that in this climate, um, how important is a book like this in terms of, I guess, delivering that nuanced sense of what is African-Australian and, and the many and varied people that it's comprised of? I think when I think about it, I think on, on the one hand, um, for the first time we get this historical document where we get to tell our narratives in our voices, in our way, and, you know, we're never going to erase this from history. So whatever generations come after us, they will always have this reference point. And we've never had that in one sort of book before. It's just never been documented. And it's just extraordinary given the fact that African migration, as Maxine points out in the introduction to the book, um, has been taking place for at least um, since the beginning of European settlement in this country. So that in itself is a big deal. It is a very, it's a historic moment in that sense. But on a personal level, I think for me, um, you know, I grew up in, in, a, in a family, my parents were very Pan-Africanist. I mean, they used to dress us up in, like, dashikis on the weekend. And I, if you don't know what dashikis are, they're sort of, like, um, brightly coloured African print onesies. Well, shirt, shirts, one-size shirts. And um, they would sort of take us out, and, and this was something that they felt we should be proud of because they were somehow terrified that the, the, the longer we stayed in Australia, the longer we sort of were removed from our Africanness. And what's been really, really wonderful in reading this book and reading the diversity of the stories is over the years after documenting so many African-Australian stories through journalism, it's the opportunity for people to see those stories the same way that I know African-Australia to be, that it is incredibly diverse and that you do have 
people that stretch every part of the continent, but also, you know, in the Americas and the Caribbean as well. And I think it's important that people begin to recognize that when we're talking about Africa, one, the continent is incredibly diverse, but even the communities here, you know, they speak so many languages and, you know, black people come in so many colors as well. And I think that there's also this idea that, um, you know, when we talk about African, and this is how the media um, defines African as though it's supposed to mean black. It's, this, it's become coded language in the media when, if anything, as the, you'll read in the book, um, you know, being African isn't necessarily uh, a default to blackness or aesthetic blackness, for example. But if anything, it just it speaks to just the broadness of, of those experiences. So I think that's what I like about this book is that I think it opens up those conversations in many ways. It challenges what it means to be an African-Australian who is an African-Australian, but also we get an, a historical document that, you know, will stand the test of time. And I think it's a very, very important thing to have. I, I wanted to write about us as normal people, if that makes sense. Like, I wrote really the core of my story is motherhood. It's about how you relate to your mom, the challenges that you have as a mother, how you begin to understand your mom really well when you have your own kids. Um, and so I think that those stories are lost because we are constantly represented in the extreme, either you know the crazy successful migrant or the one with a crossbar robbing somebody. And you lose the fact that we are just normal human beings with normal struggles every day going about our day. And that's, for me, my way of connecting with someone is to connect with someone based not, not just about race and origin and root, but common experiences like motherhood or um, finding friendship or loneliness or things like that. Those, those are interesting because I think those are common experiences that we can all identify with. Um, I didn't necessarily want to embrace a story that created something that made someone go, oh my God, I couldn't have survived that. You know, I wanted to see how I can position um, the things that I go through so that you know, someone who doesn't even share my background could also say, well, actually, they're just normal people. Just to, compl- to um, I mean, I saw this Chris Rock interview once and he was like, and then she said, oh, I heard you were in a, stopped by the police about five times and said, yeah, you know, that's aside. So I think aside of also the suffering that we had, that's not what most of us didn't want to put in a book. Like, I think we wanted to, to just be humans, be normal people, like you use the word. This and, this, and that's what we wanted just to be average. We just want to be normal. You know, just part of it. And but I think in saying that, there's a lot of problems, you know, like we you know, like I I would think whatever I experienced, uh, and I imagine most of you experienced in your lives would like most people that are Anglo or white, they would never experience that in their lives and they probably you know, like it's so tough, it's so hard in different ways, or different perspectives, but it's just so hard. And, but we did, I think most of us didn't choose to talk about those, 
Some did, but you know, not not here in the panel. Yeah, I mean, racism is a strong theme in the book, but I think, I guess, what we're saying is it's an intervention in our lives. Um, it's not our lives. Um, and there are pieces from uh, Daniel Hale Michael, who was instrumental in changing police profiling laws in Victoria. Um, he was someone who was racially profiled by the police. Uh, there's a piece from Khalid Warsam about being picked up by the police at age 14, um, and kind of what the toll that took on his family and kind of retelling that story to a friend. And so, you know, there are really strong pieces, but, um, you know, as, as with any book, there are just so many different themes in the collection. And I think that's what makes it such a, a strong book, is this idea that we all have our complete narratives like anyone else does, and it's just about the story we, we choose to tell. I think it's also credit to you and um, the co-editors, Ahmed and Magan, because I, I think you touched on earlier about, you know, whenever African-Australians are asked to write books, it's always from that very traumatic experience. And I strongly believe that if this book was edited by someone that wasn't from the black African diaspora, it would have been a very, very different book. Um, so it's obviously credit to you and, 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 and your co-editors that it does cover so much nuance and shows us in our diversity and, and just allows us to be ourselves and to just be normal. Um, we might, I think we're on to question time. So we are, we've got about 10 minutes for audience questions. Uh, if you put your hand up, I believe a mic will come to you. I, I do have the caveat that with a book like this, if any of the panellists wants to pass on a question, they should feel free to do so. So don't be offended if they do. And yeah, I mean, we're here to have a conversation. So don't be scared to ask a question either. Um, I'm wondering if um, you've always identified as African-Australian. I can see Faustina already shaking yeah. her head. It was something that I um, personally took a long time. I'm not actually, I still wonder, um, particularly being mixed race, growing up in a community where the only black person I knew was my dad, it was easy to just say, I'm Australian. Um, so I'm wondering what that journey was for you and um, whether that is indeed how you identify. I guess I can answer that as well. Being mixed race, I, growing up, I identified as Chinese-Australian because I was in a Chinese household and I ate Chinese food all day and celebrated Chinese festivals. I had no African influence per se, besides pop culture through TV, until I was in my teens and um, my mum took money off the mortgage and we went to Ghana for the first time. And that was the first time my mother met that side of the family too. So, And it, I, I would have to say that it's taken a long time for me to identify with blackness through a black collective experience and it, for me personally and this is about you know individual stories right so for me personally it wasn't until I moved to the states to see how I could expand my career there and I spent a lot of time amongst where where race is talked about very explicitly and like and, and just and very openly and that's where I felt like I could identify with more because I had black friends there <laughs> where it was I didn't have many black friends in Australia of African descent so now I say Ghanaian Chinese Australian or I'm, I'm I mix them around the words around that's that's how I identify I think for me it wasn't really a choice just because um Ever since I was a kid, I'd always be asked, where are you from? Or where are you from? And so I never felt like I ever truly belonged. And like I said, my parents were quite um, pan-African. And so they always sort of thought that it was, that you know, we had to be proud of our African heritage. 
Um, and I'm finding the older I get that it is important for me to preface it just because I think it is, um, if, if, if for any reason because of the dominant narratives around what it means to be African-Australian, I think if, if it does perhaps challenge that by me prefacing it, I think I, I, I deliberately do it for that reason now. But when I was younger, I didn't really have a say in it just because, you know, I, I stood out, I'm visibly black, so I was constantly asked about, you know, my identity and it was constantly challenged and, yeah. I mean, I, I do say that I'm African-Australian, but in honesty, I don't think I really know what that means because what does it really mean? The truth is, I'm South Sudanese Australian, or more specifically, I'm Noir Australian, because South Sudan is actually not, it's a geographical location. It doesn't identify one single group of people. So it's, the more you look at it, the more it becomes quite sometimes a meaningless term. But I think you use it as a way to allow people to place you somewhere, you know, because it's, it's rather confusing for them to. Um, know, I suppose, how to deal with you or what your identity is. So, for the, for example, for the student or a boy that told me in school when I first arrived as a refugee that he's never seen a black person before, he didn't know where to kind of place me as a person. So, I, you know, the term African Australian gave him a location to be able to say, "Oh, this is where she's from." So, I think that's what it really says. But I think, in terms of its content, what is it? It's. I, I think that's something, in my view, particularly for South Sudanese Australian, that we are developing, that we are now feeding it a meaning, because our experiences here when emerging as an identity, and maybe when our kids are growing up, they can say, I'm South Sudanese Australian, meaning a particular experience within Australia that is influenced by their blackness and being South Sudanese. How did you choose the authors? Uh, so we had um, an open submissions process. Um, there are 35 pieces in the book. Probably about 15 of them were commissioned. So people that we knew of who were around, who worked in other fields, who we thought, let's approach them. Maybe they have an interesting story to tell. Um, and then the other 20 or so came through an open submissions process. We had about 100 pieces come in, which was absolutely amazing. I never thought in my lifetime I'd get a chance to read a hundred excellent pieces of non-fiction by African diaspora writers. Um, so myself and the other curators essentially, we, to get down to technicalities, we each shortlisted our top 20 out of the hundred and if we, if all three of us had picked one then they mostly made it in and then we had fight piles. So... <laughs> Everyone could put like six pieces on a fight pile if they really loved a piece. And it was really, you know, I'm from an Afro-Caribbean background. You know, I originated from the African continent 600 years ago. My co-editors are um, Somali-Australian. And so that was a really great editorial team, I think, having that difference of experience from people who'd migrated from the continent in the last 20 years to some somebody like myself. But yeah, it was a really incredible process and we had things happen like right at the end we got a piece from someone who was raised as white Australian whose family started researching the bison, uh, researching their family genealogy during the bicentenary. It's a piece called The Whitest White Girl Ever and um, her mum kind of comes home from the Mitchell Library and says, I've located our 
ancestors on the first fleet and they were African-American former slaves. So this family suddenly has this black, you know, ancestry. And so we had things like that happen where pieces just came in from out of nowhere. Uh, one of my co-editors, Ahmed, rang me one day and said, I've just bumped into this guy who's um, the first openly queer imam um, you know, in, in the world kind of thing, and he lives in Melbourne. So I said, sit down with him now, <laughs> right now. <laughs> and that's how we got, you know, we got a recorded interview that ended up being t- um, turned into an essay. So part of it was about extended networking and, like, who do we know and, who you know, getting the word out. But we did want to have the majority open submissions. And the wonderful thing was, you know, there are 20 writers in the book who I'd never heard of before. It was just kind of, who is this person? And some extraordinary writing where was, where has this person been and where have the opportunities been for them to get published? Yeah. I think we have time for one more question. Hi there, thank you so much. Um, I had a question about unprogramming ourselves from internalising racism in the writing process. So I was wondering if um, any of you could talk about how you feel like writing has helped or influenced you in terms of recognising how you might approach the um, framing of internalising racism and uncoupling yourself from that, or, yeah. I was having a conversation with Maxine earlier on about this experience of internalised racism, and it's, I think internalised racism, in my view, is internalising stereotypes about a group of people and believing those stereotypes to be true. And so when I was reading this book and I was reading some of the stories, I found myself just in awe. They were so good. They were really, really good stories. And then I asked myself, but why did I think they're going to be bad? Like, why did I automatically assume that a story, like, create, you know, writing by African Australian was not going to be good? And I realized partly it's because I'd, I sort of accepted the idea that it was, you know, you know, there's this thing about diversity and merit and it's not about merit it's about you know creating diversity and all that this is not about diversity this is a very good book full stop and if you love literature you're going to love reading it they make you laugh they make you think they make you want to cry and that's how I think I had internalized the racism I don't think I would have approached a book by say a majority white author by assuming that it's not going to be good and you know, it's, it's interesting because I would think that I work very much on myself in terms of racism and I'm aware of racism. But I, I think that's one way I internalise racism. I'd add to that because I think visually a lot of the time. So when I first opened the book and read Potato Country, it's about two South African girls out in the bush. And I cried because I'd never seen that in my mind before. That space has been colonised and occupied by a Hugh Jackman type or a Russell Crowe type. And um, you know, I'm personally trying to work on adapting this for the screen because I work in TV and film. But that, that was a, a shock to me, you know, to be reminded yet again, I'm seeing so many white Australian stories. Um, and so it was so refreshing as well to, to be reading these stories and to know that it it sits on this continent and has links to other continents too. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, I think for me, it's a constant battle of, am I writing this for myself? Am I writing this for a white audience? And, and how, you know, it, it's like, will, will I offend them? 
you know, would they be upset? And then, and, and, and that goes through everything, every sentence I'm saying. And how am I selling out to them? Am I like, how can I connect with me first? And then the black community second, and then the white community third. But this triangle is going to my head and I write it out everything I want, but then I, when I go editing, um, it's it's like how it's, so it's internalized. It's like this internal fight, and it's you know I go to counseling, and luckily my counselor is also a black woman uh, here in Melbourne, and um, yeah, so it's she says, and then one of the things that we work on is this the idea that this self hate or the self this. Uh, uh, inability this is over extend yourself to to help the others to because you have to be the good person we grew up and I when I read Maxine's memoir for the first time um, which is the interesting thing is I know Maxine's as a child before I know the adult and because you said you know Sanchilla is an adult before you know the child and the stories are the same we like there in the playground and we're five or six and we're trying to entertain the other people because we need to be loved, we need to be liked. And then it's so hard to remove ourselves from these 42 years later, I'm still like fighting and, and working. That obviously come in my literature or in my writing. I mean, I think storytelling is a, is a powerful act in itself. Um, it's unavoidable that as African diaspora and African Australian writers, our audience is likely to be predominantly white. And that's something that I negotiate often with my writing. It doesn't mean that I write differently, but it's unavoidable to escape that reality and that, that space that I guess the writers on stage are talking about of negotiating, well, how much do you consider that? And to some extent, you have to try not to. And I think everyone in the book has done a really beautiful job of just putting a powerful story on the stage and, you know, it's a gift and how that gift is received, ultimately, we have no control over. Um, so I think it's letting go and going, I have done my bit. And, and readers are open-hearted by and large. You know, they open a book because they want to walk in someone else's shoes. They want to be told stories. They want to experience something else. Um, and so, you know, I guess we hope it's received in that spirit. And that might be a great note to end on. That was Maxine Benibu-Clark, Nudol Nguyen, Santilla Chengaepi, Faustina Ogoli, and Guido Mello. Thank you to them, to Yarra Youth Services, and to the Ewing Trust. The Fitzroy Writers' Festival will be back next year. But until then, remember that we run regular author talks at all branches of Yarra Libraries. For you, we'd recommend Tony Birch discussing his new book, The White Girl, at Richmond Library on June 12th. If you're keen to read Growing Up African in Australia, out now from Black Ink, please pop into your local branch of Yarra Libraries or place a reservation online. In the meantime, Yarra Libraries promises to respect your right to read in the bath, at the breakfast table or in the park. We also promise to charge you if your book is stained, damp or torn because of it. Take care of your books please readers and happy reading.